0: Hey guys, just a warning before we get started. This episode contains one curse word. It's actually a quote from a Vietnam War protester, but we wanted to give you a heads up anyway. So without further ado, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. In May, Artsy's deputy editor, Scott Indrasek, wrote a story that asked what turned out to be a prescient question. Is it illegal to kill the president in an artwork? The question was sparked by a painting by an Alaskan assistant professor named Thomas Chung, which depicted actor Chris Evans holding Donald Trump's decapitated head. But in the past several weeks, Scott's question has taken on a renewed relevancy after a series of artistic works showed the death of Trump from a Kathy Griffin photo shoot to a performance of Julius Caesar by New York's Public Theater. The Public Theater controversy is the most recent. Their staging of Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar includes a Caesar-styled to resemble Trump. And when a video of the character's assassination appeared online, many took offense. Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., reacted by tweeting... Serious question, when does, quote, art, unquote, become political speech, and does that change things? To answer Donald Trump Jr.'s question, we've brought on NYU law professor Amy Adler, as well as the original author of that piece, Scott Intrasek. But before we get to Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet, I think it's best, Amy, if you can just sort of address the most basic question here. Legally, can you kill the president in a work of art?
1: The general answer is yes, but there are some exceptions. There may be some uh, examples that we could imagine where an artist could go too far. I think all of the examples that you just mentioned are unquestionably protected speech under the First Amendment.
0: So let's take the Julius Caesar play, since it's on the public mind right now. That would be protected speech. Why?
1: So there are two different ways somebody... Would think about this from a First Amendment perspective. Um, the first would be: Are they actually threatening the president? Are the are the actors or the producers actually saying something that would would could be interpreted as a threat to kill him? Um, if that were so, then they could be arrested for what they've said. But it's extremely hard to cross the line from the kind of work we're seeing here into the realm of unprotected threats. The other way that we might look at this play and ask the question, I think, is similar to the concern that people like Eric Trump have voiced. And that is, is seeing the play um, going to encourage other people to kill the president? Is it advocating for the murder of the president? And there's been a tremendous amount of um, back and forth over the last century in free speech law, but it's been quite clear since at least the late 60s that, the speech we see in this play, for example, doesn't even come close to crossing the line. Mm. And what
0: is that line? I mean, is there is there a specific case that sort of drew it?
1: Yeah. So there's, um, there's this idea that, um, it, and it's the old idea of clear and present danger when speech presents a clear and present danger, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater, it's this old notion that evolved that sometimes speech is so dangerous and its connection to violent action so uh, um, intense that we actually can ban it. But since 1969, in a famous case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, the Supreme Court has said you cannot ban speech that advocates violence, overthrowing the government, all those kinds of things, unless the speaker intends imminent lawless action and unless it, it is likely to produce imminent lawless action. And so all of those, it's a sort of a mouthful, but all of it um, is important. And all of all of those different aspects of what I just said are very, very hard to meet for the government.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's imminent like... Tomorrow?
1: So there's this great case that um, the court decided after that in nineteen seventy-three it had to do with an anti-war protest. And one of the demonstrators who was being removed and had been arrested said that's as the police were dispersing the crowd said, that's okay. We'll take the fucking street later. And, and the Supreme Court said, Well, he said later. You know? <laughs> so so imminence is an incredibly um, difficult standard to meet. It's like it's that moment when when something you say or something you Paint um, is going to erupt into violent action mm. and there's no more time for talk that's that's the mm. standard that uh, First Amendment law has decided on.
0: yeah and I know Scott, I mean maybe you can chime in here because y- you kind of got interested in this subject uh, because you were wondering if the president was more or less protected if art was more or less protected what what kind of drew you to this topic? Yeah, that's
2: a good point. I mean when, when we first started talking about this I had just I had always assumed that somehow, you had to almost watch what you said about a political figure more so than just an ordinary citizen. And that, you know, suddenly if you, if you drew a picture of the president who had just been shot, let's say that that would really be, you could be not necessarily thrown in prison right away, but that it was, um, you know, you were crossing a line right away. And I think from our conversation, it became clear that you're actually more able in some ways to make that kind of work or say these kind of things about political figures versus say like your neighbor or, or someone that you know, is is uh, you could more plausibly actually be attacking. Let's say, if if I'm getting that. Right-ish.
1: Yeah. Well, so I think what it comes down to is that it, it's really a matter of interpretation, and we tend to interpret. Uh, violent depictions of a president as political speech, as someone saying, "I hate the president. I hate you know. I hate everything he stands for. I want him to stop." We tend to view it as the Supreme Court has talked about political hyperbole, generally speaking. And at the heart of the First Amendment is this incredible solicitude for any kind of political speech. So it's much easier to see s- speech that depicts violence against the president as a political. Statement, as opposed to you were saying, you know, speech threatening to kill your neighbor. Well, there doesn't seem to be any other interpretation other than, I mean, I'd have to know more about you and your neighbor. But for but another podcast, that. I love my neighbor.
2: I love my neighbor.
1: <laughs> disclaimer. <laughs> but you know, generally speaking, if you if you painted a painting of of your neighbor beheaded, what would that be about? Maybe you really did want to kill your neighbor. Whereas if you painted a painting of Trump beheaded, I think we would understand that as an act of political dissent against this administration. And so it really goes to questions of interpretation. And in a case in 1969, a political protester said, if they ever make me carry a rifle, the first man I want to get in my sights is LBJ. Pretty clear statement of intended violence against the president, one might think. And the Supreme Court said quite clearly... This was not a true threat, the kind of thing that you could be arrested for saying, but rather mere political hyperbole. And just interesting language from the court. They said, look, the language of the political arena is often vituperative, abusive, and inexact. Maybe this was a crude and offensive, but he's stating political opposition to the president. You're allowed to do that. In fact, in fact, that's the heart of the First Amendment, is, is stating political opposition to the president. Now, it's still the case that somebody who does something like this might be on the radar of, for example, the FBI, you know, and people would, I would I would think would be looking at him um, or her. But the mere speech alone is not a lo- enough for the government to punish you. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think that that example is so interesting, especially because so much of the political discourse now comes from a place where people are sort of thinking you know, this is singular, this has never happened before, there's never been this sort of vitriol in our political dialogue, but obviously LBJ, Vietnam, a lot of where this precedent arose from, it was a time of fierce political uh, opposition and and dialogue.
1: Yeah, I mean, one interesting thing that's happening now that's distinct from what was happening in the 60s is that the politics of free speech have really realigned themselves. So, you know, in the 60s, it was the left and youth against, you know, the stodgy old um, oppressive government. But now what we see is suspicion of free speech from both the right and the left. And that makes this a much uh, more volatile field, particularly as we're in this volatile moment in our politics.
0: And yet maybe you could argue, I mean, would you argue that the actual law around it is more ironclad now?
1: Yeah, that's a a really great point. In some ways, the First Amendment has never been on more solid footing in terms of extreme protection given to all kinds of speech. This court, for example, is just really, really strong on the First Amendment. I mean, I don't know if you guys noticed there was a case that came down yesterday involving the slants and trademark law and whether this question. And and although the court didn't agree on the rationale, it was an 8-0 decision under the First Amendment, saying you're allowed to trademark an offensive term. Of course you're allowed to do that. So we're just seeing more and more a a Supreme Court that is ironclad in its protection of free speech at the same time that we see a political climate where there's tremendous hostility toward free speech from the President of the United States to many, many people on the left. I think it is interesting, too, just
2: to loop back to uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet, because he was essentially asking, at what point does art become political speech, as if, when that point is reached, that you can't say certain things. And I think what you're driving at is, you know, art can, yes, be political speech, but that doesn't mean that it's not protected and that you can't, you know, enter these territories.
1: Yeah, if anything, uh, political speech is more easily protected under the First Amendment than mere artistic expression. There's actually a funny history in the First Amendment of people... Wondering is art really speech at all for purposes of the First Amendment? What's it saying? Uh, whereas political speech is unquestionably at the center of the First Amendment. Although it's interesting, what what um, was it? Eric Trump who said it or Donald Trump? Uh, Jr.? I think Donald, Donald Trump, Trump Jr. Jr. It's hard to tell. Them hard apart. to tell them apart. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think what he was. Inelegantly trying to get at may have been a question of government funding for the arts, which we haven't talked about. And um, a suspicion that if you say something political, you might be more vulnerable in terms of your funding. And that's a a different question under First Amendment law.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because as soon as as soon as that tweet came out, I read half of it in the first part, he does question if it was government funded. And immediately the NEA famously embattled from the 90s and the culture wars if you went to its website a little window popped up and said we did not fund this performance of julius like it was like such a quick reaction you could tell that there's still a kind of i don't know if it's necessarily fear is the right word but awareness of the political sensitivities that come with public funding of the arts
1: yeah, absolutely. And in First Amendment law, we might call this a chilling effect, this this fear that surrounds engaging in speech. And I think the NEA is running scared. Trump's threatening to cut their funding. And that history of the culture wars is seared into the collective political memory. Yeah, I mean, that's one
0: thing that I wanted to ask you, which is, it seems the ability to legally say these things or make these paintings as speech is is ironclad, relatively. But Do you think that there are other ways in which uh, this kind of rhetoric, this heated rhetoric, can stifle speech, not necessarily throwing an artist in jail?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're seeing is a climate of political fear um, and... You know, certainly the the example with Kathy Griffith, I think the next comedian will be much more careful about crossing that line, even though it's protected under the First Amendment, it's not protected in terms of the marketplace or public opinion. Maybe another theater will think twice about doing such an extreme... extremely overt depiction of killing Donald Trump. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing is a, is a different question, you know, what, how you think speech should be. But I also want to say this is, again, just going back to the idea that there's, there's a new uh, hostility towards f- speech um, or an, a questioning about free speech values on the left – I think um, after the Dana Schutz controversy or what's happening with Sam Durant at the, at the Walker Museum, um, I think institutions will also be more circumspect and more careful about what kinds of works they're going to show. And again, we may think of that as a really great development. So um, separating the norms that culture imposes on free speech from the actual legal constraints is an important distinction.
2: I was curious too, just in general, how, in, in terms of um, thinking about what constitutes an imminent threat or clear and present danger, do current events or things happening in the real world does that affect the discussion at all? Because one thing I did notice, obviously, another thing that's happened since the article ran and, and today was this shooting in, um, you know, at a baseball practice where this guy came and shot a bunch of people, including Majority Whip Steve Scalise. And I, I noticed on Twitter that day, uh, several people, you know, it was almost like a cut and paste job. It was like first Snoop Dogg threatened the president in a music video, then Kathy Griffin, then Julius Caesar, and now this shooting at a baseball park, as if there was a, you know, a clear cause and effect between those things. Does that complicate the conversation?
1: Yeah, so so it's, we're, it's that volatile political environment that we're living in, and an environment in which so many people are now armed, <laughs> that I think makes people more afraid of speech. But this is this is a line that the Supreme Court has been really careful in drawing. Um, Even though there may be a sort of connection between the violence in art and political discourse and the violence that we're actually seeing playing out in the public sphere, it's not that tight causal connection that the Supreme Court insisted on before you could actually throw someone in jail for saying it. So, you know, maybe Julius Caesar had something to do with them. Um, and, and all the other depictions of the president had something to do with the political climate of uh, that erupted in violence. I, I Perhaps that's right. But it's certainly not the case that the author, or rather the producers of the play, the directors of the play, intended violence to erupt. It's certainly not the case that there was an imminent connection between what was said and what was done. And the other part of the Supreme Court test that they've been careful about is was it likely? Was it likely that something would happen? You could say, well, it's not unforeseeable, but it's not likely to erupt in violence. And I think that's. Another key part of how you can see that the court has been very careful in drawing this line so that even though we, we understand that speech might have costs, we're willing to tolerate them.
2: I think you know one thing that's important to note, and when I talked to the Alaskan professor who had made this decapitated Trump painting was a lot of his students really were very conservative, Not as maybe Trump supporters, maybe not. And a lot of work they were making was kind of incendiary as well from a different part of the political spectrum. And he was, you know, he had to be okay with it. He had to be supportive of it. So I think if we're talking about these issues, it's also important to note that you have to be supportive of the right of people to, you know, depict things that you as a liberal art world denizen might also really disagree with or hate or something like this.
0: I mean, yeah, that's interesting. I. I maybe take a a different slightly different opinion, which is I I think that obviously like there's a difference between uh, locking someone up for depicting president Obama and Julius Caesar as Julius Caesar getting murdered. But I I also am, am wary of necessarily making the mistake of thinking that free speech is inherently equal just because everyone isn't thrown in jail for it. You know, like depictions showing violence against groups that have been historically marginalized are inherently less protected just because of, how they they exist in society. So I'm I'm a little more maybe if when you level everything by accident you might actually provide power to the groups that have already historically enjoyed it more.
1: Oh wow. that's interesting. That's that's very much I think the a, a view that's emerging um among students on campus and so forth that is at odds with traditional free speech jurisprudence, which is about leveling and being completely blind to content and all of that stuff. Um, But, you know, I do think it's, I I like Scott's point a lot because I think I'm making assumptions about, about um, artsy maybe right now, but I'm, (laughs) I'm assuming, you know, that we're all more or less living in a liberal bubble in New York city in the art world. And, May not be that worked up about anti-Trump speech, but I'm glad you brought up the example of um, of disempowered groups, for example. And I think if you, if you again, if if we look at uh, the debate that's happening about the Dana Schutz painting or the Sam Durant work, you can see this um, concern about the connection between artworks and violence that suddenly becomes more understandable. Uh, people within the bubble
0: yeah and of course the this this discussion this debate takes on a different tenor when there are questions over funding and the actual ability of an artist to create uh something and 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 make make the livelihood and generally historically it's been uh the the forces of the right through the nea uh mayor giuliani here in new york threatening to to close the brooklyn museum um several years ago uh, trying to trying to stifle uh, the funding or support institutional support of of speech that's more on the left. So, yeah, Amy, I'm just wondering legally if there's a different standard, different test that a court will look at when evaluating whether or not an agency must or must not fund something under the First Amendment, for example.
1: Yeah. So there's actually significantly more leeway for the government to make distinctions about speech based on its content in the context of funding. And it's a little murky, actually, under the First Amendment. But one thing that we should remember is there's no obligation to fund speech to begin with. So the government's free to eliminate the NEA, and that's not a violation of the First Amendment. One example of how the government can go too far comes from the 90s when the mayor of New York City, um, Giuliani, targeted the Brooklyn Museum for the show Sensation. And there was, as most people will remember, or at least have read about, um, a work by Chris O'Feely in that show called Holy Virgin Mary, which depicted um, the Virgin Mary in a way that um, Giuliani inaccurately described as splattered with elephant dung. And uh, Giuliani called it blasphemous and threatened to basically shut down the Brooklyn Museum for showing the work. And a court decided that that was unconstitutional. When you're, when you're saying, your speech offends me and now I'm going to shut you down, that crosses the line of um, what you can do in the funding context. But whether the government could go forward and say, you're not allowed to fund stuff or or. Try not to fund stuff that's too offensive, that's probably okay. And in fact, the Supreme Court in a case involving Karen Finley, another um, old name from the culture wars, the court said that could be allowed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Even I've had
0: interactions with like, uh, you know, about a piece that I was writing for for a show that I don't even want to name because the, the guy at the gallery was like, we're funded by the state, please don't include any anti-Trump stuff in here. Like, I don't want this to be positioned as explicitly anti-Trump. Like I don't want to get anyone in trouble. So it's interesting because also when I was, I was interviewing the Catholic league's president, Bill Donahue, who was integrally involved in the, in the Chris O'Feely Brooklyn museum thing. And he said specifically to me that this kind of chilling effect was his intent. I mean, it, what, there, there's no like ambiguity here. It was, we want people to not make this sort of stuff ever again or show it anymore. Um, and, and I, you can even see that. And in, in when I was talking to this gallery, uh, uh, director. It's even before um, any of this, this rhetoric even ratcheted up even more is before the election.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that's at play here is also uh, corporate sponsorship. Mm. So we saw this with the public theater where Delta Airlines quickly cut their sponsorship, I and guess. And Bank of
0: America, I think, too.
1: Yeah, and um, that's increasingly another way that um, we see speech curtailed in the public arena. People are afraid of losing they're funds, whether it's government funds or corporate funds,
2: and that obviously goes both ways. I mean, with Bill O'Reilly, you know, I mean, it's both both sides are kind of obviously pushing for that as a as a tactic to empower themselves, I guess. To...
1: Yeah, and we see that too with the boycotts of any anything connected with the Trump empire yeah. <laughs> on the left. I suppose, like any
0: tactic, these things can be mobilized by anyone who wants to mobilize them. They're not like inherently ideological.
1: Yeah, but I think what it shows is that. Law doesn't even begin to exhaust the field of what we hear and what we say, and you know, money is a big part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of the rhetoric around art is this idea that it can bridge uh, political and cultural and social divides, and then it's a, it's a tool for thinking about things and coming together. Or you know, not quite as kumbaya as that, but but still, there's a sort of air of positivity that advocates sort of put around it. And I was listening to the the NPR show on the media this weekend, and they were talking about this very same issue. And I'm going to borrow. Uh, one of the hosts Brooke Gladstone's questions and put it to you which is that if art is meant to do that uh, and a play like Julius Caesar which actually has an incredibly complex nuanced view around political violence is reduced to this one factor without actually an examination of what the play is saying about whether or not you should assassinate a political leader what does that say about art's role in the current climate politically
2: well I I don't know if it's directly answering your question, but what is interesting to me is just the way, as, as this, in the same way that Trump's attitude would cause people on the right maybe to just disregard news in general, that maybe with this issue with the play now and everything else, suddenly people on the right would go, oh, plays in general, museums in general, art in general is a liberal left-wing thing that has no relevance to my life. I guess a ton of just Shakespeare theaters across the country have been getting like random hate mail and you know they're not putting on julius caesar to begin with let alone <laughs> julius caesar with a trump character but it's just people that are either you know not not doing due diligence to figure out which shakespeare theater they are hate mailing i guess but <laughs> but it almost just seems like suddenly there's this animosity against just I, I guess theater or something you know um i guess the same thing with hamilton you know all these all these issues that it, people would just start to look at art as being inherently liberal or not addressing their lives?
1: Well, I think inherently elite. And this, this association of art with the cultural elite is something that was uh, made very distinctly during the time of the culture wars in the 80s and 90s and I think is rearing its head again in uh, this moment of uh, populist antipathy towards, towards the elites. But I mean, I think the other thing, I'm just thinking about Isaac's question, um, we might ask, does political art really work? I mean, you might also ask: Is it good? <laughs> is it good art, or is it too? You know, are we, are we interpreting art in too narrow a political sense? Maybe is um, diminishes diminishes the art. But have you guys ever seen examples of um, political art that actually worked? Because I think there's this real desire right now to to see art as a realm for making changes and um, a newfound interest in political art. And I'm just curious about it.
2: I, I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna. Talk about what my mom's opinion on this is for a second, yes. just to get her listening to the podcast. Bring mom the I think the podcast. she she got in a fight with my brother about the Kathy Griffin photograph, and you know she was not defending. She was not saying that that shouldn't have been able. You shouldn't have been able to make that image or whatever. But she was essentially just saying, I think it's counterproductive and kind of dumb, and you're not going to win anybody over. If anything, you're going to lose some people who are maybe on the fence. Um, yeah, I do. I do think some political art definitely is just grandstanding and making. You know, I, is someone going to look at a painting of Chris Evans holding Trump's decapitated head and suddenly say, "Oh, wow, Trump is not so great," and now I'm going to vote <laughs> for whoever in 2020? Um, I don't think it's that. I think there are there are things I've seen before. I think there's a Thomas Hirschorn piece. I forget what it's. I forget what it's actually called, but it essentially just involves. I think the artist is kind of flipping through these really gruesome bloody images of war, the kind of thing that yes. you don't see in the New York Times or really anywhere, you know. I mean, they're really kind of horrific and it's trying to make a point about how we're desensitized to these images and stuff. And that to me is like one kind of piece where, I, I mean, I, I would say it's political and it did You know, it's pretty effective in a a way. Yes. There's not too many examples I can think of.
1: I remember that piece, and I actually use it when I teach about war photography because he was making, I think, a really interesting point, which is people around the world we're really seeing much more extreme images of war than we were seeing in the U.S. media, which was, was still, actually still is quite sanitized. The Internet is another story. But we're not really, we really haven't seen um, that many bloody bodies, and certainly not American bodies. That's not depicted. And so that piece, I think, was a, a very powerful piece for me, too. Uh, so that's a, that's a cool example.
0: Yeah, and there's also, I mean, another Thomas Hershorn. Maybe he he really knows what he's doing. But there's the Gram- there's a Gramsci monument in uh, the housing projects in the South Bronx. I mean, there's been some debate about the lasting impact that that has had. But as sort of a work that uh, undermines the notion that art is elite, that that did an incredible job of sort of creating a community space that they that the people living there really own, and you could tell just visiting it. Uh, that that it it really felt genuinely connected to a place that the art the quote the conventional art world either doesn't know exists or is like waiting to gentrify. So so it it was a really interesting that that was a really interesting work as well.
2: But in general, I would agree that it, a lot of political art tends to be sort of very much preaching to the choir and in a way that just you know solidifies these distinctions of people outside that bubble kind of going oh of course this is how you people are this is what you people think and you know so it, it, that's a whole different issue but. Um, yeah, they, it's. I'm glad it's protected speech. I just, don't, yeah, whether whether it's effective is, is a different story.
1: And that might just have to do with who's looking at art, you know, and those kinds of political questions about who, who is art really for? Um, so maybe it's not that pol- political art is often ineffective, but rather that not many people pay attention to art, mm-hmm. except when it becomes bound up in a controversy.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, I think, I think always measuring things based off their efficacy is is sometimes really hard because oftentimes you don't know, or maybe the purpose is to like rally the base or people who already agree with you to, to take more concrete political action. But I also agree that just in terms of how much if you, if you dropped into, you know, swing voter in Michigan would be like, what did you think of that Whitney exhibition? They'd be like, what, you know, like, or maybe actually that's, that's wrong. Maybe they would. I mean, I don't want to insult people's intelligence. I think that's also maybe the flip side of this equation is, is to be too dismissive of people's cultural understanding. But I think it's something that either way, we're not, The fact that we're not sure or we have a difficult time kind of articulating art's place sort of shows the limitations of where we are sitting in a New York office recording a podcast. So not to play into the idea that we're living in a a bubble, uh, in a cultural bubble, but... That said, uh, where are you going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week, Scott? Um, Well,
2: still keeping in line with our talk about freedom of expression, Uh, there's a show opening this week at the Museum of Sex. It's called NSFW, The Female Gaze. It is a very large group show, um, all women artists, including some people I really like, uh, photographer, Aneta Bartos, and uh, an artist, Sophia Naret, and a bunch of other people. Um, So I will be there. Amy, what about you?
1: I I just wanted to say that's cool because um, we didn't talk about it today, but uh, most of the famous examples of art censorship played out around people who were using sexual materials in their art. And Mm. several of the people who were targeted in the culture wars were actually women using uh, pornography in their work. So that's cool. Um, The show I want to see that I haven't seen yet is the Doug Wheeler Show. At the Guggenheim, although I I haven't gone in part because I'm really scared of the soundless room. It just <laughs> sounds terrifying.
0: And I am going to be seeing uh, Robert Rauschenberg at the MoMA, and and it doesn't totally tie into what we were talking about. But Rauschenberg, interestingly, uh, was championed by the U.S. government, not censored by him in the 1960s as like an anti-communist artist, an artist who could never exist. Uh, under under communism and and won the golden lion for the U S at the Venice Biennale. So there's a political history, even if it's not necessarily a one of censorship. And I guess before we we close out, just because it's so relevant to to this week's topic, I think we've noticed that you know obviously summer is a time of group shows, and it seems like the predominant theme this year are political. Uh, group shows. There's alt facts at postmasters gallery. Help me out. What are, what are some other ones?
2: Uh, well, next week the artist Peter Saul who's uh, Often depicted kind of political violence, but in a very cartoonish way. Uh, he's amazing uh, He's giving a talk at the Hotel Americano also on the topic of fake news in some in some way
1: And there's this show at flag about the New York Times, which Sounds really cool <laughs>
0: Well, thanks so much to Amy and Scott for joining me here this week. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. See you next time. Our producer this week was editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Broke for free.